Hey guys, in case you haven't heard, you can get the Ruben Report podcast totally ad-free. Join Ruben Select at patreon.com slash Report. That's patreon.com slash Report. Joining me today is a writer and columnist at Quillette Magazine, as well as a philosophy major at Columbia University, Coleman Hughes. Welcome to the Ruben Report. Thanks for having me on. Dude, I had to change my shirt because your shirt looked so pressed and starched and professional. It's ironic because I normally dress like a complete slob. I wear the same <laughs> black hoodie every single day. Yeah. But I thought, Ruben Report, you have to bring a game. Let's right? do it. I, I should have worn a tie, but here we are. All right. There's a lot of reasons that I want to talk to you. Uh, you were sort of, I think, put on, put on my map and put on sort of the, the IDW map and, and the map of all of the people that that care about the issues that we talk about here uh, about, what was it, about five or six months ago? Something like that. Something like that. Your piece, I want to get the exact title right, was The High Price of Stale Grievances, and that was in Quillette. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just had Claire on the show last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to talk about a lot of things you've been writing about. I want to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a student at, uh, at a university these days, especially one that, that leans pretty far left and all sorts of stuff. First, just uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you grew up, all that, that kind of stuff. From Montclair, New Jersey, uh, which is just 30 minutes outside New York City, nice suburb. Um, uh, you know, I had a pretty typical middle, upper middle class upbringing and uh, great parents. Um, and uh, out, of, out of high school, I, I was going to a music school, actually. I was dead set on being a jazz musician Huh. And I still play jazz trombone. Nice. But along the line, I ended up shifting paths and uh, going into philosophy and enrolling at Columbia, where I have two more years. How do you go from jazz to philosophy? There's probably some through line there, right? I don't know that there is, honestly. No? I, think, I think I just loved both of them and realized at a certain point that just going to school for music was limiting. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So you said uh, middle class or upper middle class. Yeah. Did you have? Did your family have any particular political beliefs? Were you guys political at home? Any of that? My my mother was nearly a Marxist. Wow. She, um, she. I remember her talking to me about Marx and Durkheim when I was three and four years old. <laughs> she she came from uh, the South Bronx immigrant Puerto Rican family, very very poor, in the seventies when the South Bronx was the picture of crime and. Uh, just decay and she she was a very smart woman ended up getting a a, trying to get an anthropology degree but she passed away of cancer while while she was getting it Mm. but no she she I was I was exposed to to Marx and Durkheim and uh, some other other Marxist thinkers when I was I, I could have told you their names when I was five years old Wow my dad is a bit of a libertarian um, but I got less of his, his he, he was working much of the time. So Yeah, so that, that's a real mixed yeah. household of politics. Though. Yeah. Did you sort of lean one way or the other? Yeah, I always leaned heavily left if I, if I leaned a- anywhere at all. Yeah, I mean, as early, uh, you know, my, the beginning of my political identity was definitely anchored around identity politics and especially black identity politics. Uh, yeah, I was, you know, 24, what was it, 2013, 2014, when Black Lives Matter started cropping up. I was, at that point, very much enthusiastic about that movement. I was you know, posting on Facebook, having seen a police shooting. 
uh, to the effect that this is, this is proof that the system is rigged against black people. So that, that's more or less what I was politically as of maybe five years ago. So yeah, that, that was very much in my upbringing. It was in the water uh, in, my, in my social environment and intellectual environment growing up. How much of that is part of the whole thing, of just being around a certain set of young people that believe a certain thing so that you all sort of believe it together, whether it's ultimately true or not? Yeah, I think, I think we're social animals and, and we're heavily incentivized psychologically to not break ranks with the norms of our social group. So if, if, if those norms are that you have to believe in the god Vishnu, Shiva, then most people are going to uh, grow up believing those things. And it takes a, a kind of a, a rare personality to, to be a contrarian in that context. And, and if the norms are you have to believe in, in, in systemic racism, you have to believe that America is a unique evil, uh, then people will grow up believing those things. And, and likewise, if the norm is, uh, you know, uh, um, abortion is murder and there is only one God and it's the Christian God and homosexuality is a sin, then most people in that context will, will end up believing those things. So, yeah, I mean, I, my, as far as my upbringing, I think I can remember meeting precisely one Republican and he was my fifth grade history teacher. And he was such a good history teacher that, you know, in this public school that it kind of made up for the fact that he was a, a Republican because <laughs> all the parents who want their kids to get ahead wanted them in his class, right? Huh. So, you know. There's something there. there. Yeah, yes, yes. But I guess, yeah, long story short, it was very much, of an echo, very much an echo chamber, very ideologically siloed. The Rubin Report is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? Making the lottery the centerpiece of your retirement plan or letting your friends pick your karaoke song or using a job site that makes you wait for the right candidate to apply for your job. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Rubin to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, skills, education, and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the US. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Rubin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Ruben, ZipRecruiter.com slash Ruben. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Yeah, okay, so so far your story I think sounds pretty consistent with a lot of what's going on with, with young people. How, how old are you now? 22. 22, okay, so you said in 2013, so only about five years ago, so you're 17, mm-hmm. you're sort of in this thing, this is the beginning of Black Lives Matter, when did you start realizing that perhaps it wasn't as much of a positive as it had sort of been laid out to be? Well, I think it's, it's hard to reconstruct one's own narrative after the fact, but I remember one thing being significant, which was when uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. I remember being in my first year of college taking, taking a class at Juilliard, and we were talking about this killing, and it was just obvious from the point of view of most in the class, including the professor, 
that this was just another in the in a long line of examples of black men being brutalized in a country that fundamentally does not want them to su to succeed and i don't know what like what it was it, it may have been cuz you know I had, a, I had a roommate who was you know from from arizona from a very different kind of political climate who who was skeptical of this and I didn't even know how one could be skeptical of this. It was so jarring to meet a person I liked that, or many people I liked that were skeptical of the, the things I took for granted. Yeah, were you guys able to get into it? Because that's always one of the big problems Probably. here is that people can't do this stuff with their friends anymore. Yeah, well the thing is, I think we were such good friends at that point for apolitical reasons that you know, no, no amount of politics was gonna, was gonna destroy that. But I, I think I just spent one night reading the complete testimony from from uh, from Michael Brown's friend and from the police officer and I came away thinking well if the police officer is telling the truth then that was a justified shooting if his friend is telling the truth then it was unjustified but the, I don't know who's mm -hmm. telling the truth and no one in my class knew either but everyone had the same opinion so that I mean I remember that being significant do I you, remember do you remember speaking up about that like when was the moment that you were kind of going, all right, I gotta say something about this. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I spoke up about it. I'm not sure I would have had the confidence yeah. to speak up about it. Yeah, were there a couple other things after that? Because I, I find it to be one of these things that once you see <clears throat> this thing for what it is, that then it sort of happens very quickly. I think a lot yeah. of people that watch this show have acknowledged that because I think it's a lot of former, former lefties or whatever you want to mm -hmm. call it that kind of see one moment like you just laid out mm -hmm. And then they start looking at other things and going, yeah. wait a minute, maybe that's not how it is. Maybe that person's not racist just because I disagree with them on this or whatever the case well, may yeah. be. Well, yeah, I guess I, could, I can point to two other quick moments. One was uh, once, I, once I arrived at Columbia, I heard of this guy, John McWhorter, who I, I, I had no reason to believe anything about at the time. But I just went, I don't know, on a whim, I went to the library and just searched his name and picked the first book I could find. And it was called Authentically Black. And it's a series of essays he wrote in the early 2000s about the fact that it's viewed as authentically black to con constantly point the finger at white people for any given problem in the black community, whether or not the evidence bears that out. And uh, because it's viewed as authentically black, there's this incredible taboo on anyone who thinks differently. And I was, re I was reading these essays and I, I remember thinking, Oh my God! This is this is right, and I've never heard a black person say this out loud, but it's it's obviously right, and I didn't know you could say that. I remember that that moment being significant, but still, the, I mean, these subjects are so hard to talk about. I, I do remember doing at, at some point doing MDMA, and <laughs> this yeah. is where the, most people have their break. <laughs> yes, um, I guess this. Maybe makes the, the the red pill analogy a little too literal. <laughs> there you go. But I, I do remember. I mean, because you know, I I don't I don't enjoy being the black person at odds with most black people around me, or getting accused as I sometimes do of being self hating or, or mm -hmm. an Uncle Tom. Like I, I don't enjoy that. That's that's very much a cost of what I'm doing psychologically. Mm -hmm. But I remember remember doing. MDMA and I was talking to a black friend of mine about race issues and 
you know, if you've ever done MDMA, you know, it just puts you in this totally clear headspace where you love everyone around you so much and you love yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember we were talking about race issues and I was articulating more of the kind of points of view that I articulate now. And I, it felt so silly that I had ever had a hang up talking about these things in any other context. Huh. And you know, after that, I just I felt like, like there's no reason I can't try to approximate that more and more often. Of course, it, it's it's much harder when you're sober. But yeah, the analogy though, or the yeah. metaphor of the red pill, really has <laughs> some value here. Yeah. How did that conversation end up? I mean, an MDMA laced conversation about well, I feel like race. All, all MDMA laced conversations go well. Yeah, I, I mean, something has to be. I mean, it, yeah, it is, I just, yeah, I think, I think if we and more and more enter conversations with a mindset of the person I'm talking to has reasons to believe what they believe and they're coming from a good place, then I, I, a lot of conversations can go well. That said, I've had a lot of conversations with people since then that have gone <laughs> extremely well, uh, yeah. sorry, extremely poorly yeah. and um, have ended quite bitterly. Yeah, and I want to get to some of that and some of the things that people call you and all that. So, okay, so you have these, you know, a couple successive moments of, of waking up. Um, when did you finally start talking about this stuff? You know, I think um, I, I had talked about it he, here and there with, with friends and family, but, and I had been trying to write about it a bit for the school newspaper and just writing on my own but not publishing over the past year. But I think what, what, what did it was when Kanye tweeted, uh, I like the way, I love the way Candace Owen thinks. Mm -hmm. When he tweeted that, something about that moment was so inspiring to me to see someone who nobody on earth would question their quote blackness. Because in many ways, Kanye is viewed as, as the picture of blackness, however one cashes out that term. Um, to, just to see him break ranks, to, to see him break, break the taboo, even though he did it in, in a way that, you know, even though he's not an intellectual, he, he said crazy things about slavery that, that aren't true, and endorsed someone who I don't, I don't see myself as having very much in common with, namely, namely Candace. Just the fact that he was willing to break the taboo at all, someone mm -hmm. of his platform, was so inspiring to me that, that that's when I started writing for Colette. Yeah, so yeah. what was, was this the first piece you put out for Colette? I think that was the very first, yes. That was the very first yes. piece, so okay, so the, the title of the piece, as I said, was High Price of Stale Well, Green yeah, Pieces. this one was different. This one was, um, uh, this one was about Kanye and Candace. This was Oh, before, right, right, so I that. I think th this one got more traction, the one you're, uh, sorry. The one okay, so I yeah. think this is, so I don't think I was, you were on my radar from that one, although Correct, that whole. probably. That whole thing, yeah. the whole Kanye thing, just sort of broke in such a crazy way. There, yeah. were, there were so many pieces written. Um, okay, but so let's back up then. Mm -hmm. So then when you write this piece about Kanye and Candace, now you know, Candace is a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. She's been on the show. Right. Uh, I like her. She has some tactics that are, that are not my thing, but mm -hmm. that, that's her thing, and I can disagree with people and all that. Right. Um, your basic feeling, though, this was a net good no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, are there risks, though, in uh, you know taking somebody like a Kanye and having that be the moment that wakes up people because you don't know where he's ever going to go with things, or is just the action itself enough? I guess time will tell. I think 
yeah, it, it is inconvenient that you know, Kanye, it, I, I love his music and, and I've been a fan for a long time, but he clearly has some narcissistic elements to his personality. Uh, he, he's clearly not someone who deeply researches the subjects that, that he sometimes talks about. So he kind of took a, a very blunt sledgehammer to a taboo, which I appreciated, but there are, there are serious downsides to that, namely, mm -hmm. when he says that slavery was, slavery was a choice, <clears throat> something that ignorant seems to discredit his taking the sledgehammer to the taboo, when I, I do think they're separable in principle. I, I also think... When he said, you're talking about when he said that on TMZ, right? Yes. yes. And his counter-argument to that was that he means that it's, it was sort of a mindset, yeah. I think was his counter. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So... Just that, that soundbite reads so awfully because yeah. it, it seems so uninformed, regardless of what his, his intent was there, that it can, it can seem to discredit that he did a good thing on, on, the net, on net balance. Yeah. And you know, I, I also I, you know, I have, I have reservations about Can Candace Owens as well. I've, I've seen her uh, reason in ways that I think don't make much sense, although I, I have some points of agreement with her too. But like I said, I think, I, I think there's a taboo that is incredibly strong, right? There, there are lots of black people who agree with some version of, of my takes on race and are absolutely mortified to say so because there's this massive taboo. Yeah, and that's also why for, again, whatever my disagreements are with Candace, it's like I see her as someone that's trying so desperately to break something, the mm. very thing that you're talking about. So it's like if she's using tactics mm -hmm. that maybe I wouldn't use or you know, tweets in a, in a more hostile way at people or whatever that I wouldn't do, it's like, I don't know that I, I'm the one that should be telling you how to behave in, mm -hmm. in that regard. Yeah. D does that make sense to you? Not so much, only because I, I feel like there are a lot of people who might like what Candace says on race, for example. So, so when Candace says, you know, to go, goes to a college and says, and sees all of all of these black students reminding her of the history of Jim Crow, which they didn't even experience, mm -hmm. and using that as 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 a rhetorical weapon. And Candace says, "Listen, you were born in 1990, right? I completely agree with that. Mm -hmm. That is that is a message that needs to be hammered home, which is that history is in the past, and we have to be getting past history." But you know, when she says that you're on the democratic plantation, mm -hmm. I think that is a kind of exaggeration that is not useful because people with a different set of intellectual priors will just hear that and be immediately closed off to, to whatever else she says. And you know, I, I've also heard her just reason in ways on, on Joe Rogan, for example, when he pressed her on climate change, mm -hmm. kind of appealing to a, a sort of feeling over facts kind of way of thinking which is actually quite characteristic <laughs> of, of the far left but you know she I, I think she also gets treated unfairly and she gets assumed to be a sellout um, which I, I think is is is, is ridiculous ridiculous assumption to make about people in general unless they make it absolutely clear that they are so I you know she's she's someone I, I, I would be happy to talk to at some point but I'm happy to set that up if, yeah. if you'd like to make it happen okay so you, you write this piece now this is the first public piece that you've written about this stuff <laughs> Did you have any idea what kind of reaction you were in store for? No. No. Walk yeah, me through it, that moment. Um, well, yeah, I think it got retweeted by Christina Hoff Summers and Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and, and some other people, and it really, really blew up. 
And uh, yeah, I, that was psychologically distressing because, you know, I'm a normal person. So when I go from having 50 <laughs> Twitter followers to 10,000 in, yeah. in a week or something like that, that is a pretty life deranging moment. And uh, it, was, it was just kind of physical stress, a low level physical stress all day and not sleeping as much. But you, you get, I think you get, you'd be surprised what you can get used to. Um, so, were you, were you shocked where you were getting defense from and where you were getting outrage from? Or I assume you expected it at least at some level. Yeah, no, I don't think I was shocked by that. I mean, I knew at this point, I knew at this point exactly who would be very pissed off by by my my opinions. And at this point, I had resigned myself to to being to those people being pissed off at me. And no, I'm not. I mean, I'm not surprised that the quote IDW types. Uh, liked my work because I like a lot of their work. Um, so no, I, I guess that wasn't that wasn't so surprising. Yeah. So when yeah. you then wrote the piece, the high price of state, the high price of stale grievances, uh, which was also in Quillette, you started with a quote from Thelonious Monk that I thought was was sort of worth diving into here. They tried to get me to hate white people, but someone would always come along and spoil it. Mm-hmm. There's something about that quote that strikes me as so relevant to what's going on right now, that we are not looking at people as individuals and that every time you do, you will be pleasantly surprised because most people are not walking around in this state of hate. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it, it, it's striking. I mean, I, and I, 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 I um, juxtapose that quote with another from the New York Times, from a New York Times op-ed published last year, uh, which argued that black children should be taught to fear white children based on the history of racism in this country. Uh, and the quote was, as against our gauzy national hopes, I will teach my boys, my black boys, to have profound doubts that friendship with white people is possible, right? So that got published in the New York Times in 2017. Uh, you know, Sarah Jong got hired uh, having, having written incredibly nasty tweets about white people in 2018 by the New York Times, right? It's, it's, it's disturbing to me that you can't, you can't really find at this point on the left, even on the mainstream left, just the simple articulation that a person's race does not matter to their moral worthiness, to their intellectual worthiness. It is, it is an irrelevant character. You can't find the language of... of, of appeals to colorblind humanity, virtually anywhere on the left at this point. Um, that, that is disturbing to me. How shocking is it to you? Because I think people are still kind of shocked. You know, I've been banging this drum for quite some time and I think, I see people waking up to it now and I'm like, man, how didn't you see this? Mm-hmm. You know, these, these last couple of years, because it's so obvious mm-hmm. to me that we've gotten here. Yeah, no, it, it, it is shocking. I mean, I, I, I do remember growing up you know, in, in the public school system in my town, we would have Martin Luther King Day assemblies. It's a very diverse town, maybe 25, 30% black and 60% white. And we would, we would get the, you know, the I have a dream style ethic around what it means to be a human and how important or unimportant one's skin color is. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like such a, it seemed like it was such a good argument to me. And it is the best argument with regard to people's, you know, the, the assumed, I guess, 
what, what I mean to say here is that I, I've been in spaces at Columbia, for example, or conversations where my being black, it was obvious to me that there was an assumption of, of moral worthiness or of uh, a kind of heightened moral knowledge mm -hmm. that I would have as a black person that a white person wouldn't have. And you know, I think, I think I, I'm not the first to make this analogy, of course, but the re re religious analogy and the, the analogy to original sin mm -hmm. is pretty apt um, because it, I mean, the, the way, the, this has a lot to do with black history also because the way, I, the way I see it, there are kind of two ways to study history. There's the conventional way, which is you, know, you study World War I, you study the causes and consequences, read different takes on, on, on the significance, and once you've studied all you need to know, you move on to the next topic. But then there's a religious way of studying history, which is, I mean, it's not enough to know the facts. We have to go somewhere on Sunday, every, you know, every mm -hmm. single week, and learn, talk about the same stories over and over again. So th this is, you know, it's, it's the difference between how an atheist learns about the life of Jesus hmm. and how a Christian learns about the life of Je Jesus and relearns it every week for the rest of their life. In my view, how we're looking at the history of race relations in this country, the history of racism, we are more and more putting it in the religious category of history where you know, I can read a piece about the history of lynching in the New York Times almost you know, once every two or three months. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, lynching is a decades-old crime at this point, and I mean, Jesus Christ, obviously it was a heinous stain on, on this country's legacy, you know, but the, the number of deaths that, that is, is the highest amount quoted in the New York Times with regard to how many black people were lynched in this country is around 4,000, right? Every single year, twice that many black people die of homicide, and I, you just don't even hear about that in the New York Times. So what do you make of the fact then, so this is something that like a Sean Hannity will talk about. He'll, he'll say that exact yeah, thing. Yeah. And now if you say, and then people will say that somehow that makes him racist because he's fo <coughs> focusing on black on black crime or something like yeah. that. So how do we have that conversation then? Because I think partly what's happening is the outrage, you know, someone mentions it. He happens to be someone obviously on the right. Uh, I don't know what his intentions are. I don't know the guy, but he's, yeah. he's at least talking about it. What sure. you just said, people aren't talking about. Yes. But then pays a heavy price to talk about it. That then has the chill effect that it's like, people are like, all right, I'm not going to talk about it. So we can look at the crime statistics in Chicago every week. And you, you should care about these statistics, whether the people are white or black or whatever. Mm -hmm. But people are just like, I don't want to touch it because yeah. I don't want these labels. Yeah, it is, it is decidedly, I mean, this is one of the reasons why you know, I'm, I don't see myself as you know, a natural ally to a Candace Owens, for example, because there are so many other things that she says that, uh, you know, that, that I don't agree with. And I, I guess it's the Sean Hannity problem, too, because if you can't criticize a Sean Hannity or a Candace Owens for all of the things that that they're saying that are you know, un unjustified by the evidence. Mm -hmm. you know, in Candace's case, case, it might be climate change or, or whatever it is. Um, for Sean Hannity, it could, could be other things. Uh, then I guess you just have to be able to, to make these subtle dis uh, uh, distinctions. But at the end of the day, homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men aged 15 to 34, according to the CDC. 
it is not the leading cause of homicide for any other race or, or age group. Um, can we talk about that? That I mean, can, is it the case that we're, we're, we're so close to white people turning the hoses on us again, to the Sean Hannity's and, and their supposedly deplorable um, you know, followers, that, that we're just so, the threat of white supremacy is so ever-present, of resurgent white supremacy, that we can't talk about the leading cause of death among young black men. That, that, that is not sustainable. I mean, the, the, the fundamental problem I see with how the left in general thinks about race is that the concerns about r race and racism are totally unattached to the degree to which black people are suffering on any given issue, right? So we're talking about the leading cause of death for young black men. And I, I never read about this in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I know that I won't, right? So this is, this is a problem that is central. It is, it is bigger than the problem of police violence. It is bigger than, you know, than the problem of microaggressions. It is bigger than the problems of, of systemic bias. And yet, there is, there's virtually no concern for this on the left because the, the, the way I see many progressives think about race issues is a perpetrator side concern, which is mm -hmm. if the perpetrators of the problem are white, then it's worth talking about. If the perpetrators of the problem happen to be black, then it's not worth talking about. The problem with that is that it's untethered to any concern for the level of suffering on this side, on the victim side. Do you think it's a fair estimation to say this is the new racism in a weird way? Like, it's, it's almost uncomfortable to say it, but I had uh, an educator in the UK here in the mm -hmm. summer, Catherine Burble Singh, and that's basically what she said, that mm -hmm. these people are now the racists, mm -hmm. that the racist ideas of the day are actually coming out of the left. Now, I don't want to use the same tactics, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to sit here and be like, they're all racist and blah, 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 because mm -hmm. we know that that doesn't really get us anywhere. Yeah. The general idea of that, do you think that that's a fair way to frame things? I, I wouldn't frame it. I mean, the way I would frame it is that there is a kind of racism on the left, and it's the kind of racism where the New York Times hire, hires a writer who says that, who celebrates the idea that white people stop breeding, right? And doesn't apologize for it. Yeah. No concern with how, that, how that's going to translate to you know, white people in this country who have vastly less privilege than you know, the tech writer at the New York Times. Um, and what about that statement that they issued defending her? Yeah. You saw that where it said something about the hate she gets as a young Asian woman, and right. it's like, what? That, that's now a new thing? Okay. Yeah, that you, can, that you get to be racist because you've gotten trolled online. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that, so coming back to the question, that is, that, that is I, I'm happy to call that a kind of racism for sure. It's the only reason I would say there. I wouldn't go as far as to say they are the new racist is because they are still racist on the other side, right. and I fully expect there to always be some amount of racist in society and some amount of racist incidents. Like the way this is another problem with the way many on the left think about race is that they they tend to view the problem of racism kind of like we view the problem of smallpox, mm -hmm. which is to say something that can be fully eradicated down to the very last person who has it, and then we can put a date on the time when smallpox is no longer a problem, forever. Whereas I, and I would argue 
anyone who's really thinking rationally about this problem should view racism as more, more like a, a problem like murder, right? Like the murder rate in New York City used to be 10 times higher than it was today just 20 years ago. It was, it was absolute carnage. So the, the, the rate is it's come down tenfold. New York is notoriously safe at this point. Uh, something like 200 murders, two or 300 murders last year, right? Mm -hmm. What would it take to get the murder rate down to zero? to the point where there was not a single murder in New York City. You'd probably have to murder everybody. Yes, <laughs> you have to, I mean, you have to embrace a totally totalitarian yeah. vibe from the top down. It could be done, but it would not be worth what it took to get there. You'd hit diminishing returns. So I view the problem of reducing racism, reducing racist incidents against black people as a problem like homicide rather than smallpox, which is to say, you can certainly reduce it, and we have massively. But there is a point at which, in a country of 350 million, there will always be enough people who are racist to, to justify a certain amount of racist incidents and to fight it beyond that endlessly. You hit diminishing returns. Yeah, and also that it's depressing and it kind of sucks, but people can be racist. Mm -hmm. Like, privately, you can be racist. Sure. Now, you can't discriminate against people and, and there's all sorts of reasons that you can't bring that into public life. Mm -hmm. But in your own mind, in your own home, you can be. It's, I would prefer people not be, but that they're trying to eradicate like something that's actually just part of the mind. Yes. Yeah, you wanna, you wanna educate people enough so that they hopefully won't hold those views, but that is the diminishing returns because yeah. you're literally gonna be in people's houses at that point. Right, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a question of not, yeah, I, mean, I guess it's a question of what your view of human nature is. This comes down to very fundamental pillars of one's uh, political ideology, which is do you have a kind of utopian view of human nature where there's nothing tragic about us, nothing flawed about us, and all of the flaws come from bad ideas in the culture. And humans are naturally poised to be just perfectly selfless until we get ruined by society. Hmm. See, that, that, I think there's no reason to believe that at this point, right? Like, chimpanzees murder. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like, they, they, we're animals in the animal kingdom. It's not to say that we're, our human nature is fundamentally evil either. It's, it's clearly, there's a, there's a wide range of potential there, but there's no, no reason to assume that we're evolved to be not racists or that we're evolved to be um, you know, woke, perfectly woke, or that it's possible to get to a point where everyone in society has been fully purged of every ounce of evil in their heart. I mean, that is such a utopian outlook. And like I said, the, the, to the extent that you're fixated on that goal, to the exclusion of the costs of your fixation, once you hit diminishing returns, you will be fighting a fight that is a net bad for society. This episode of The Rubin Report comes to you thanks to our friends over at Keeps. Guys, let's talk about something no one wants to think about but we've all worried about, hair loss. Maybe you've noticed you have a little less hair than you used to have, but you're not sure there's a real solution. The thing is, there's only two clinically proven medications that let you keep the hair you have, and now there's an inexpensive way to get them. You don't need to lose your hair if you don't want to. I have to tell you about Keeps. For just five minutes now and a dollar a day, Keeps is coming to the rescue so you never have to worry about hair loss again. We decided to give the 
ordering a try, we snapped some photos, answered a couple simple questions, and got a prompt response from the licensed doctors over at Keeps. Getting started with Keeps is truly so easy. Signing up for Keeps takes less than five minutes. The entire ordering process was so quick, there's no reason to keep putting off trying Keeps. Keeps offers the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of you have probably tried them before, but you've never gotten them at this price. Keeps is only 10 to 35 bucks a month, plus now you can even get your first month free. That's a hell of a deal for getting to keep your hair. To receive your first month of treatment for free, go to keeps.com slash Rubin. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Rubin. That's a free month of treatment at keeps.com slash Rubin. Keeps, hair today, hair tomorrow. Now back to the interview. All right, let's talk about systemic racism, or at least the idea of systemic racism. Yeah. So I think you've seen the video uh, of me about two or two and a half years ago with Larry Elder, and I brought up systemic racism. Larry Elder proceeded to commit a hate crime on me, a white man. He beat me senseless with statistics. Yeah. And I came to a, a fight, not ready to, to fight, basically. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely one of my red pill moments, mm -hmm. so to speak. I was not prepared. I heard new information. I did research after that. Subsequently, I've had many people on this show and many conversations uh, that have led me to, to more of Larry's original premise. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, first, when you, when you saw that moment, uh, was that the first time you had ever seen me do anything? Because that's what a lot uh, of people tell me, and I'm like, oh. I don't oh. think it was the first time, but I <laughs> yeah. think, I mean, I don't en envy anyone who is debating Larry Elder on anything. He's, yeah. he's pretty devastating. It but, must um, have been kind of refreshing, though, when you saw this moment where he laid it out, and yeah. you know, there was no counter, because right. there is no counter. Right. Well, yeah, he, he, what he did with you there is he, he went through each specific venue in which supposedly there is this big systemic racism problem where the system is rigged in such a way that it doesn't require any individual in the system to be racist in order for the system to spit out racist outcomes. Mm -hmm. That's essentially the idea of systemic racism. So he went, he went with you through, he said, just name, name a place in society where you think systemic racism exists, and he just de ba basically destroyed each one with the specifics of of the case, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to do a better job than he did there, or yeah. than he's capable of doing. But there, there's a bigger picture way to test the systemic racism hypothesis, which is to take two populations where it's it's a very messy, crude science experiment. But to take two populations where you're holding systemic racism constant, namely black Americans like myself and black immigrants, especially black immigrants from the West Indies and their children. So we're talking about immigrants from Jamaica, Barbados, other places in the West Indies, and specifically their children, their American-born children. So these are people you could not tell apart from black, like you couldn't tell if I didn't tell you that I wasn't the child of a Jamaican immigrant or mm -hmm. something, right? And you find, the, the, the thing about these is that these two populations differ in many ways. Some, some, some ways are very hard to quantify, but they differ culturally. They differ for all kinds of reasons, um, because partially because the kind of immigrant who gets out of a Jamaica differs systematically. It's going to be disproportionately intelligent, disproportionately hardworking. Whatever the traits are that get you from Jamaica to New York, say, that's a cluster of attributes that 
that makes that population differ. But there's, there's one thing that is not different, which is they are subjected to whatever level of systemic racism exists. So T Thomas Sowell has done good work on, he, he, back in the 70s, he, he showed that uh, second generation West, Indi West Indians living in the same city as black Americans were earning 58% more. Right, so they're they're both being treated to whatever degree badly by white people. They're whatever this whatever system you want to suppose is holding black people back is equally affecting both of them. Uh, the, the Columbia so sociologist Van Tran has a great essay in which uh, um, you know, the, this this difference is, is brought out. You find neighborhoods of of black Americans right next to neighborhoods of black West Indians in New York. They're equally segregated from white people, mm -hmm. so it gets rid of you know this, the the idea that being segregated by itself or living around people who only look like you is inherently a um, a, a disadvantage. Um, it gets around the the policing issue because these populations are being police. The police can't tell the difference between a second generation West Indian and and a black person. It gets around whatever level of systemic racism is or isn't in, in the pipeline with regard to schools. And you find wildly different outcomes. You find you know, rate of high school graduation much higher for black West Indians, uh, rate of enrollment in college much higher, rate of you know, professional occupations much higher, crime lower, right? So this suggests to me that there mm -hmm. are that, that the role of systemic racism to to whatever degree it exists is is minimal at this point uh, and the, the the there's a whole narrative built around the idea that this is the primary obstacle facing black people and it's worth noting i don't i don't think most black people actually believe this hmm. because i mean there there are various polls to cite here but there's there's one from Pew that that asked black people without high, without college educations has has race has your race held you back at all in life sixty percent said no it's a recent Pew poll hmm. another Gallup poll asked is bias the main issue facing you in 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 jobs and housing sixty percent again said no the, uh, the the Harvard sociologist Ethan Foss has done extensive polling of the black community and found that disconnected black youth, which are you know, black youth without, who aren't in schools and don't have a job, so the people on the lowest rung of society, something, something around 30% of them think the system is rigged and 70% don't. So what, what we're getting is we're getting the voices of black people who believe the systemic racism narrative promoted to the, to the most powerful uh, media positions in our country. So we're getting the impression that right. this is a uniform view and it's not. Right, so this is sort of the Jesse Jacksons, Al Sharptons. Yeah. They get moved up because they're given sort of simple answers. Right. So I guess it, it harkens the question then, I could ask this either way, <laughs> what is it that the West Indian immigrants are doing right, mm -hmm. or what is it that the other folks are doing wrong? Yeah. You, I mean, you can answer that in either direction you want sure. to go first. Well, par I mean, part of it is just immigration selection factors that I mentioned, right? So. The, the kind of Jamaican or Barbadian who makes it off the island to New York is likely to be disproportionately hardworking, dispropor disproportionately X for whatever X factor is. And so in, in that sense, the, the direct uh, comparison can be misleading, but it just 
analyzing why these two populations differ, you find West Indian immigrants uh, more likely to come from a two-parent home, um, you know, more likely to have had a m more classically socially conservative upbringing, which is you, know, you don't talk back to your parents, parents are rather strict. There are downsides, of course, to that style of parenting, but um, it, basically what I'm saying is that there are cultural factors that are important that differ between these two groups, right? You find if, if there, are, there are many, I mean, th this, is, this is where the conversation for many people gets especially uncomfortable, yeah. right? It's the idea that every culture, every subculture is identical in the beha behavioral patterns that are inculcated and wherever there is some, wherever there is a disparity in some outcome, it's not possible that culture accounts for some or most of, of that disparity, which I think is a very silly idea. Well, it's um, completely nonsensical. Yeah, like yes. Cultures are different. Different yeah. people and different groups put different emphasis on certain things. Some yeah. put more on family, some put more on education, some put more on sports or yeah. whatever the hell, whatever right. the hell it is. So when you hear Larry Elder make the argument, you know, something around until 1972, the black family had a higher rate of, of staying in marriages, and then he mm -hmm. lays out the reasons that he believes policies of the Democrats destroyed all that, mm -hmm. that, that obviously resonates with you, right? Because you're, you're giving me some piece of this, both answers, I think, resonate or went back to family, rates yeah. of marriage <clears throat> and, and some sort of conservative ideals. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a very complex question. people hate when you talk, when yes. anyone talks about this, yes. about family. People yes. just absolutely hate it. It is, it is a fact that black, the, the rate of two-parent homes and marriages was pretty similar to the white rate until the 60s. Um, it is, it is a, it's a matter of scholarly dispute as to what was the cause. It, it, I think it's certain at this point there was no one cause. Welfare state may have had something to do with it, but I think it, it may have just been changing norms in the culture, because we're seeing the same thing happen in, in, in the white working class as well now, mm -hmm. with uh, the decline of, of two-parent homes to a lesser extent than, than has happened in the black community. Um, yeah, so, so I guess, what, what, yeah, so I mean, we could talk about some of the, um, the most important behavioral patterns that are different between uh, black families and, and white families and Asian families. Um, I mean, there, there are some statistics that I, I, I just I don't see any way in which this could possibly be explained by systemic racism. For example, one is that if you ask 13-year-olds if they've had their first sexual experience yet, you get 9% of, of whites saying yes, you get 21% of black people saying yes, right? So it's more than a two-fold difference there. And that has everything to do with family dynamics, with, with there not being two parents in the home. It, it is a development issue more than it is an issue of treatment by white people, mm -hmm. right? I, I have another piece in Quillette uh, called Black American Culture and, and the Racial Wealth Gap where I talk about spending differences. And you, you, you know, Nielsen, the, the marketing firm has done, done research on this, found that the average black woman is more likely to own a luxury vehicle than the average white woman, hmm. despite the fact that the average uh, black family has one-tenth the wealth of, of, of the average, average white family. Spending patterns on, on jewelry and, and expensive clothes are very different in the black community. Um, whatever you want to say about these from an ethical, this is not, a, I mean, I'm not. Right, I know you're one, not making an ethical judgment. Right, as, I mean, I'm not finger wagging at people saying do X, don't do Y. I'm saying 
there are there are entire books written by respected left-wing scholars about issues like you know, wealth or income or that, that just don't mention a single one of these facts as if it's not relevant, right? So what's, what's the through line then or the connection between all of this and the welfare state? Because the more that I've explored these ideas, the more that I am starting to buy that that almost is the, the real problem here that we've given a certain amount and then it's just human nature, people don't want to stop being on the dole. That has nothing to do with race. You could give it to anyone. But in this case, we happen to be talking about black Americans. But I can give you just one simple example, which is my sister lives in, uh, in Manhattan, not that far from you actually, and she's in a building that's part subsidized. So there's a lot of black people in the building that have been there for generations now that are there subsidized, my sister and her husband, two kids, they're not rolling in dough, they're paying full market price. But the people that are in the subsidized housing, it's almost impossible for them to leave. I don't even blame them because they're paying next to nothing. And if they wanted to work more, they'd probably, and then get off the, subs- the subsidies, mm-hmm. they'd probably have to leave the building in the first place and right. go live somewhere worse. So we end up with this horrific catch-22 that again, I don't blame, I don't put this on race. It just seems to be affecting people of a certain race more. Yes, I think, I mean, I think it's clear that there was a point in, in, in the late 60s and 70s where the welfare state was clearly incentivizing counterproductive behavior disproportionately among black people. Um, I mean, the reason I, yeah, I, I, I don't, I think we need a welfare state. I think there's, there's really no free market, there's no capitalist economy in the world that doesn't have one because mm-hmm. they're just, and, and you know, people's jobs are being taken by automation and that's only going in one direction. And we clearly need a welfare state and we need one that doesn't incentivize uh, you know, counterproductive behavior and we haven't always had that. And yeah. When you say welfare state, don't. you mean some sort of social safety net, That's basically. what I mean, yes, okay. correct. Because I think people, when you say welfare state, I think people have a different sort of connotation. Perhaps, yeah, that. I mean a social, I, I mean something that catches yeah. the people who can't really can't help themselves, who can't trade their skills for uh, money in the market. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So, yeah. so then how do we untether the issue of people that are now stuck in that machine, where every time you talk about it, you're called a racist? No, I mean, this is, yeah, it, it is extremely pernicious because I, th- I think it's clear that the welfare state, the way it was rolled out in the 60s and 70s, had bad effects for black people, right? It's, it's, it's hard to fully explain the decline in two-parent homes without noticing that a, you know, a black mother in the early 70s stood to lose money by getting married mm-hmm. to a guy, right? Because of the perverse incentives of the welfare state. That said, it's not, the, just because the welfare state was one of the causes of the decline of the black family doesn't imply that taking it away would repair it. Mm-hmm. So. I think, I think that is something, like Charles Murray, for example, wrote a big book in the 80s that made him big, Losing Ground, which criticized the welfare state very much along these grounds. But I think even he has acknowledged that at this point, removing it, once you set it all into motion, mm-hmm. it's not obvious that removing it is a cure, which is, which is tragic, but true. Yeah, it's, it's a real tragedy yeah. because then it's like, I mean, this is where you would definitely have an, a, a difference of opinion with Candace, mm-hmm. where her <laughs> argument is 
rip the Band-Aid. Rip the Band-Aid, let the pieces fall where they may. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what her policy is on then helping like the poorest of the poor or uh-huh. whatever. Like, Are you literally going to be kicking people out of their houses? Right. I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah. But I think there's, there's a growing feeling, I think, at least of, of a certain set of people that it's not working. You're acknowledging why it's not working, and these little Band-Aid fixes seemingly only make it worse. Yeah, it's. I think it's a very complex issue because there there are some there are some elements of the social safety net that I think economists agree are working, like the earned income tax credit, Mm -hmm. which actually incentivizes you to work. It helps the worst off people in society without. It it basically corrects the the massive mistake of welfare in the Lyndon Johnson era. but yeah, no, it's a, it's a complex issue, yeah. for sure. So I hate to talk about race this whole time. It's like kind of annoying. I know it's what you mostly write about. What, what else is kind of on your mind? Like, what are the other issues that you care about? I, I mean, we can keep going on that, but I always feel like it's like, it's, that's also a sort of tragedy of all of this. Yeah. It's like your whole worldview is to move past all this. Yes. And yet because of that, you get thrust in, into the conversation. It's right. a weird... Uh, a weird psychological condition, I suppose. Yes, it is. Does that uh, just drive you crazy in general? Yeah, I mean, I don't... Before I, we move on. <laughs> I, race is not something I find inherently interesting. Yeah. I think it is... Like, when I have, when I have a free moment to, to read a book, I'm not ordering the race book. <laughs> because... But, but at the same time, it, it is a topic that looms so large in our politics. And so much of what is said makes so little sense that... I, it, it, it just gets to me, so I have to say something, but it's not something I enjoy. I mean, what, what I really enjoy is uh, philosophy and science. Um, so, so when I have free moments, I, I tend to read things in those, in those genres. Yeah, well, you're working for the right lady, Claire, over yeah. at Quillette, because yeah. that, that's what she cares about, too. Mm-hmm. This interview is brought to you by our friends over at Bravo Company Manufacturing. When our founding fathers created the Constitution, the first thing they did was ensure the rights of an individual to share ideas without limitation by the government. And you might know how much I value free speech by now. In the Second Amendment, the founders guaranteed an individual the right to protect themselves. Owning a rifle is an awesome responsibility, and building rifles is no different. Started in a garage by a Marine veteran more than two decades ago, Bravo Company Manufacturing, or BCM for short, builds a professional grade product which is built to combat standards. This is because BCM believes that the same level of protection should be provided to every American regardless if they're a private citizen or a professional. Bravo Company Manufacturing is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life-saving equipment. BCM assumes that when a rifle leaves their shop, it'll be used in a life or death situation by a responsible citizen, law enforcement officer, or a soldier overseas, so quality is of utmost most value to them. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand assembled and tested by Americans in Heartland, Wisconsin to a life-saving standard. BCM has always put people before products. They build their products because they feel it is their moral responsibility as Americans to provide tools that will not fail the end user when it's not just a paper target, but someone coming to do them harm. Because of this, BCM knows that making reliable, life-saving tools is only half the story. They also work with leading instructors of marksmanship from top level 
vessels of America's special operation forces. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to bravocompanymfg.com where you can discover more about their products, special offers, and upcoming news. That's bravocompanymfg.com. Need more convincing? Find out even more about BCM and the awesome people who make their products at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusa. Now back to the interview. So actually, we can shift a little bit. So uh, you attended an event uh, that uh, there's an IDW group in New York put together. Mm. Uh, it was put together in like two or three days. It was me and Eric Weinstein and Faisal Matar and, mm. and Melissa Chen. And we were just kind of doing like IDW 101 stuff. And you, you asked me an interesting question during the Q&A. So I'll let you present the question. And then I want to hear your answer actually before I repeat my answer. Yeah. So my, my question was essentially... There are a lot of people who really don't like the intellectual dark web, think it's just a bunch of cranks who are you know, playing footsie with the alt-right in this objectionable way, um, and totally dismiss the whole thing. But then there, there, are, there are many other people who think, well, you know, I, I, like, I like half of the people in the, in the intellectual dark web. You know, I don't m maybe like the other half, but I think it's, they have a you know, kind of nuanced take on it, but they're really... What, where one loses them is the fact that you know you, you've had Stefan Molyneux, Mol, I don't know how to pronounce Molyneux. it. Molyneux, right? So this this <clears throat> this character that people view as objectionable to whatever degree. I, I don't know. I don't follow him, so I don't know whether they should or shouldn't view him that way. Yeah. But you know, or Sam Harris has had Charles Murray on the podcast, which you know many he he just has. A terrible reputation on the left, largely undeserved. Yeah, or Joe um, Rogan had Alex Jones on. I mean, exactly. we can we can do, you can a, do an endless ad infinitum. Yeah. Um, and it seems like that is is the last place where people who might otherwise see this phenomenon as good get off the ship. Yeah. Or I've I've had I think I've had conversations with people where that was kind of the last trench to die in in terms of criticizing the phenomenon. So my question was, what do you like? What do you think about this? Do you think? I mean, this is also a criticism that Barry Weiss raised in her in her piece about yeah. it. So I, I mean, I guess my answer to that would be, I'm. I mean, well, do you, do you know this guy Daryl Davis? He he he's a, a black guy who did a documentary. Can't oh, remember the name of it. Where he met with the white supremacists. He met right? with Ku, Ku Klux Klan members. Yeah. As a black person. Yeah. And just hung out with them talk to them about various issues, became friends with them, right? So imagine the psychological courage this takes to sit across from someone who literally thinks you are an inferior kind of human being and to put that aside and just expand your circle of empathy to include them preemptively. Incredibly inspirational. So, and he ends up getting over 200 Ku Klux Klan members to renounce their membership and he keeps their robes in his closet as a kind of trophy of having de-radicalized mm -hmm. them, okay? And then he gets harshly criticized from Black, Black Lives Matter for having, having done this. Um, which is, which I, found, I find to be the most galling irony in the world because we're talking about a person who has done more to reduce racism in this society than almost anyone I could name in mm. Black Lives Matter, right? He has, he has gone like uh, you know, many many progressive activists, they they tend to go to the spaces that are actually most progressive already mm -hmm. and try to make them even more progressive. So they show up on the university campuses 
already the most progressive places on planet Earth and then accuse them of being systemically racist, right? So we're talking about a guy who actually went into the trenches. Yeah, he went places, to the belly of the beast. No exactly, doubt about it. and was successful in de-radicalizing people from white racism. Um, the, the, point, the point I'm making here is not, not to compare, obviously, Charles Murray or Stefan to, to a Ku Klux Klan member. My point is we ought to be expanding the range of people we're willing to talk to and disagree with and I think that insofar as you're able to challenge people or just expose, expose people's ideas, I think that in the long run, as uncomfortable as it is and counterintuitive as it is, tends to, tends to be better. Yeah, so I'll just repeat it quickly, but that, in essence, that last portion especially, really was my answer. Now, first off, some of us, Rogan, me, and Sam particularly, we interview people, mm -hmm. so we can't say we're for you know, plurality of ideas and we want to talk to people we disagree with and all that and then only talk to people we agree with. Mm -hmm. So that means we are going to talk to some of these characters. Without getting into any of the specifics of the people that I've had on the show, of course, sometimes somebody, you may not ask the right question here or there. I'm not even, I'm not even saying that that's what I did or didn't do. But you have, like, otherwise we're not taking any risks. Mm -hmm. And the group of people that will talk to will become infinitely smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And also we'll be sort of, um, we'll be hostages to people that don't like us in the first place. And that's what I'm more concerned about. Mm. It's like, I don't want people who don't want any conversation to be happening at all to have ownership over who I'm gonna talk to. Yeah. Now, on any specific moment, could any of us do something a little bit differently? Sure, but in essence, yeah, you're asking about the gatekeeping that, that Barry was talking about. Yeah. I don't even know that it's it's for me to say. And as I said before, you know, we don't even have. It's not like we're walking around with laminated cards and we go to a secret meeting somewhere. Right. But I think the best sunlight's the best disinfectant. I just mm -hmm. I just fundamentally believe that. And as far as I know, no one was hurt by any of the interviews that I've done. And mm -hmm. I think I've I've helped a lot of people that were maybe into some of those yeah. ideas. You know, that was the right. one that people were giving me a lot of. That's the it's the Daryl Davis phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, nobody's um, lost. I mean, that's what I really believe. And maybe that's a little um, rose-colored glasses of me. But I believe that, you know, when, when people were giving me crap for doing Alex Jones, it's like, forget what he thinks about things for a moment. Clearly hundreds of thousands or millions of people are watching this. Yeah. I came on on a live show. I said whatever I believe. I didn't lie about anything. I said the same things I say here. And then I got emails from his people saying, you know, I never heard a decent liberal talk before. Now I watch your interview with Brett Weinstein. It's like, yeah. wow, that's pretty cool, man. So I just think perhaps we, and I mean you and I in this case, we just have a little bit more tolerance for, I don't think if someone hears something, it's going to immediately infect them and then mm. they're going to take that infection and infect other people. But yeah. I think a lot of people operate in that prison. I think so. I mean, the, the, uh, one of the reasons I asked this question at the event is because... I was glad you did, by the way. Yeah. yeah. It's because, for example, Charles Murray has retweeted some of my pieces. And you know, I've, I've gotten into exchanges with some of my critics where I've, I've kind of talked them down off of the ledge of me being a sellout right. or you know, convinced them that I'm, I'm operating in good faith. And the trench they're dying in criticizing me is, well, Charles Murray retweeted you, and he is X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I, I, I think, A, that's just, that's like two layers of ad hominem. Yeah. Like ad hominem is attacking you instead of your belief. 
but attacking someone else instead of your belief, it's like... <laughs> that, that's a bit much. Yeah, yeah, it's ad hominem twice over. But we seem but. to be in this, in this place now where people like lists, you know, the SPLC is making lists of people that are bad people. Yeah. You know, there was this alternative influencer graph that you yes. probably saw that I tried did, to yeah. link together. I didn't even know probably 10 or 15 of the people on there, and I don't... I, you know, and I looked at the list after where they're including me in this like crazy, whatever it was, white supremacist list or something. Yeah. Not only did I not know plenty of the people, Several of them I have muted because they hate me. <laughs> so it's like, like you just come together with anyone that has walked past you. Oh, you shook hands with that guy? You didn't know who he was? Too bad. You're, you're screwed, man. Yeah. That's it. No, I think, I think I was telling this to you before we filmed, but I think we, we live in a McCarthyist era with regard to especially racism, but also other, other isms. Um, I mean, I, I hope historians look back on it as that, but you know, we're getting... We're getting people fired for you know for saying the N word in an anti-racist context. You know, Papa John's, for example, yeah. got, the CEO of that got fired for saying the N word, and there was no pushback on that. Yeah. The guy said it in the context of an of... anti-racist, right? Like recalling his the racist of his youth and the heinous things they would say. Yeah, right. And gets fired. It gets his name taken off the gym of his local hometown. Just gets his reputation deep sixed, and. Right, so like it, this is happening. It happened a, a month later to 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 this executive at Netflix, who's in a in a meeting about offensive words in Netflix's comedy context. So how do you have a meeting about offensive words without saying offensive words? Right. Unless you're just going to be talking like alphabet soup <laughs> the entire <laughs> right. time. So he says this. Fired. So th these are no nobody upon reflection thinks that these people are racists. It is completely. It, it is it, it is analogous to McCarthyism in that sense, it, and the word racism has been denuded so fully of of its of its moral valence and its moral charge at this point that you know people you know we're, we're caring less and less about actual racism too. That's a fear here. Like once you once you strip this word of all its all its moral charge, then you have a boy who cried wolf scenario, which ends up backfiring spectacularly. And I would argue. That that is happening. We're seeing a, a, a surge on the on the far right as well, yeah. right? So I, I think that that was also my concern. I mean, before the election, I did plenty of videos about you got to stop calling Trump Hitler, yeah, because if he is not Hitler, and for all the reasons that people don't like him, the guy's not Hitler. Mm -hmm. And it's like you keep doing that, you won't even realize when the real bad guys come. Yeah. And the people that would be sympathetic to your views will no longer listen to you yeah. because they'll view you as the boy who cried wolf. Yeah, and Bill Maher, Bill Maher called himself out for doing this, for calling you know, Bush and Romney racists or mm -hmm. what, whatever it was. He, right, he, he said that Romney hated women. Yes, and, yes. Yeah, yeah. And he called himself out for being hyperbolic so that when, when Trump, Trump came along, who, who actually has done clearly, or has said clearly misogynist things, mm -hmm. is, is alleged to have said some things that if he did say them, are, are clearly racist. Yeah. Um, people don't care anymore because they've been so sullied. You know, they've, they've been called racist a thousand times by the pundits at MSNBC, and it's, it's been true maybe 10% of the times, but not true. Like for the, the, the funniest case of this to me was uh, when, when Trump called Omarosa a dog, right? Watch you turn on NBC, MSNBC after this, or, or read the New York Times. It is just obvious to those people that this is a racist slur. He's called this black woman a dog. 
this is obviously racist, and if you're defending it, you're a racist too, mm -hmm. okay? And then, you just, if you have an internet connection, yeah. you look at the other people Trump has directly called a dog, you find Mac Miller, before he passed away, of mm -hmm. course, you find um, David Axelrod, you find Adriana Huffington, just you, you find white person after white person that he has directly called a dog, not said they did something like a dog, because he, he likes that construction <clears throat> too. Right. But he's called a white person after white person a dog. There's no reason to believe that this was a racist incident, and yet every pundit at MSNBC is saying that it is. And anyone who likes Trump and you know, watches Fox News, they're getting these clips exported from mm -hmm. MSNBC, seeing themselves called as racist by called racist by implication or by association, and then seeing someone like Tucker Carlson, who you know, I have I have reservations about, but seeing someone like Tucker Carlson make perfect sense about it, just destroy th this view with with simple logic and facts, and imagine how how refreshing it is to have someone like Tucker doing that. And obviously, like, you're, you're going to get tired of being called a racist in, when, in cases when it's so obviously not true. And there's just a lack of due diligence. There's a lack of any concern for, for facts and for logic. And that ends up having a very a, a bad effect on the other end. Because now Trump, I mean, tr there are some things Trump has said for which racism, I think, is the best explanation. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's a Klan member. I think he's a very mild kind of New York racist of his era, you know? Mm. There, there are degrees of racism, in other words. But the point is, it's like, the, the reason that Trump voters, I think, for the most part, excuse him on some of the things he said is, is not because, or not for the most part, because of a random upsurge in racism that happened in 2016 but wasn't present the past eight years. Like, there are counties that went for Obama twice that went for Trump. Mm -hmm. it is, it is, I think it's largely because people are absolutely sick of, of being tarred as racists, untethered to the facts of the specific cases. Yeah, and man, now we've got just the match made in hell. We've got yeah. a group that calls everyone racist, a guy who you know, is happy to fight them on every bit of it and, mm -hmm. and use that as fuel to, to get his base going. And yeah. So what do you, somehow, I, I said we were going to shift out of race and we went right yeah, back to exactly, race. Exactly, yeah. All right, we're going to try to finish up with something else. But what do, you, what do you even consider yourself politically these days? If I, if I was trying to label you, I mean, I have a sense, mm. you know, you're somewhere in that classical liberal situation. But does, does that even matter to you? Do, you? do you think of yourself a certain way? I think if you can be gender fluid, you should be able to be politically <laughs> fluid at this point. Yeah. I think uh, well, I don't. For a white woman, I, I find your political views you. to be quite I appreciate confusing. that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, no, but I think, I mean, it, it, is, it is strange that, so like, politics is a social construct. Political ideologies, these are fully social constructs. And it seems like we're getting more and more rigid with the degree to which we take them seriously. Um, obviously, one should take ideas seriously, but I don't see anything to be gained from anchoring myself to conservatism or liberalism or libertarianism even though I find wisdom in, in all of these three uh, political ideologies. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think if, if, I can, if I can make politically fluid a meme, <laughs> that, would be, that would be great. I will see what I can do. All right, yeah. give me one other thing besides race. What are you doing for fun these <laughs> days, man? Uh, I'm reading a, uh, reading a lot about, I'm taking metaphysics, taking philosophy of language and mind, both of which I what find What are you doing for fun? Reading metaphysics. All right, all right. <laughs>
You got a political future in front of you or what? Oh, God, no. And people See, this often is the problem. This people is the problem, though, right? People often ask me that. No, I would never go into politics. Actually, people assume that about me, which I think is really interesting because I detest politics. I hate it so much. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I give that vibe off, but it's, yeah, I, I cannot see myself as a politician. You're too sane, that's the problem. It's been a pleasure, man. Likewise. All right, for more on Coleman, follow him on the Twitter, at ColdXMan.